Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about famous authors who wrote for adults but yet also wrote children's books. Examples include James Baldwin, Truman Capote, William Faulkner and Graham Greene. We're joined by book collector John Blaney. There is an exhibition at the Grolier Club in New York called They Also Wrote Children's Books. It runs until May the 2nd and it features books from John's collection of modern first editions. John has selected 40 children's books from his collection and paired each one with a famous novel from that particular author's work for adults. Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms is paired with The Good Lion, Hemingway's story for children where a lion with some unusual eating habits decides to visit Venice. Langston Hughes's The Ways of White Folks is paired with Black Misery, Hughes's 1969 children's book about growing up as a black kid in America. And Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is paired with The Crows of Pear Blossom, Huxley's 1944 story about missing eggs. But let's hear from John. Welcome, John. Yes, thank you very much for including me or involving me in this interview. Um, I've been collecting modern first editions for a while, and I'm uh, very pleased to be part of this interview and uh, delighted with the reception I have gotten from the the catalog itself and the exhibition uh, at the Grolier Club. Yes. Thank you for having me, Richard. No worries. It's super interesting when I've seen what's going to be on display. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your collection. Uh, when did you start collecting and, and how, how extensive is it? Well, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be giving away my partial age, I guess. Um, I started collecting modern first editions uh adult authors, obviously, um, about almost 50 years ago. And I started, uh, I think as a result of having purchased The Catcher in the Rye, which I loved, and had a first edition, inadvertently having purchased a first edition, and realized that there were some issue points connected with that. And that kind of attracted me. Uh, I was also involved in uh, jobs that enabled some free time, so I could devote a lot of time to frequenting uh, bookshops and auctions and uh, book fairs, etc. So that got me started with modern first editions, and uh, it evolved into, as we'll discuss, I guess, uh, the children's books. But basically, it was uh, Catcher in the Rye that started me in in the early days, way back when. Now, the exhibition, where did the idea come for this exhibition at the Grolier Club? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I had so many modern first editions, uh, adult authors again, and uh, I now have about, I guess, around 2,500 first editions, and they were all adult authors, as I say, and I got... Uh, to the point where I had so many of them, many books I did, I didn't need. There weren't that many that I did did not have that I wanted. Uh, there are still a few of them, Sound and the Fury, for example. But uh, but I, I inadvertently just came across the idea about five or six years ago that many of these same authors that I had been collecting 
also happened to have written a children's book. And that's the thing that really uh, surprised me that they, that they did and that the books themselves were not that well known. And so I found out that they were considerably less expensive to buy than my modern first editions. So I wound up acquiring uh, quite a number of these, and at least 40 of them, I mean, 40 of them are now in the exhibition. That's how I got started on the on the children's uh, uh, exhibition. But what, how, how did the idea for the exhibition come about? Because I would casually mention to friends uh, about these children's books, and they were really shocked. They were quite surprised. Oh, you mean so-and-so wrote a children's book in addition? One example being Ken Kesey, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously a well-known author's book. But did they know that he had also written Little Tricker the Squirrel Meets Big Double the Bear? <laughs> no. <laughs> Neither did I. No. And until I wound up acquiring it. And uh, that was the idea for the exhibition, that, that uh, it might be of interest to people to realize so many of these authors uh, that they're familiar with had also written a book that they were not familiar with. And Red Pony, as, as uh, Richard has pointed out to me, uh, w was well-known, but many of them are not well-known, um, partially because the the author was not particularly good at writing children's books um and the classic example i'll get to that in a moment i'm, I'm getting ahead of myself richard <laughs> that's okay why do you think some of those um some of those books are not so well known right so, so i definitely knew the steinbeck book i had no idea that huxley had written a book about crows um why do you think they're not so then they're not better known uh, i i think it's because the 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 book itself may not be particularly uh attractive or appropriate um it also could be simply because the what was i going to say they, they when they wrote it they think it's easy to write a children's book uh, you know, just having written a supposedly uh serious uh, involved adult book and having it be popular, they thought, well, how difficult can it be to write a children's book? And they found out that it was, but not as easy as, as they thought. Um, I think one of the stories behind that uh, comment is, is the Hemingway book that uh, uh, not many people have heard of. Hemingway wrote a book called The Good Lion. And it's probably the least likely children's book in my entire collection. The Good Lion is not only un, uh, unhappy, he's living in Africa, he's not only unhappy because he has a pair of wings on his back and he's taunted and bullied by his fellow lions, but he doesn't quite like the menu, uh, doesn't like the tr uh, he, he doesn't like to eat traders that come through his village as do the other uh, young lions that, who delight in eating the traders. He would prefer pasta. So this winged lion decides to emigrate. And where does he go? He flies away to Italy. And where? He goes to Venice, which, of course, every six-year-old knows that a, a winged lion is the symbol of the city of Venice. He goes in Venice where? He goes to Harry's Bar, of course. And where? And what does he do? He orders a very dry 
martini uh, with Gordon's gin, no less, and he orders it from Mr. Cipriani, uh, his very good friend. This is not the ideal, understandable children's book. Uh, so that may be one answer to your question about why are they not as uh, uh, claimed for having written children's books as, as they are for having written adult books, Richard. It's very Hemingway that it ends up in a bar. <laughs> hmm. Well, the interesting aspect of that, too, Richard, is the fact that Hemingway, around the same time, wrote a book called Across the River and Into the Trees, which features a love affair with a young uh, an American soldier with a young, uh, beautiful Italian countess. And Hemingway at the time happened to be very familiar. Uh, li- he was living in Venice at the time, and two of his better friends were uh, a young, uh, beautiful Italian countess and her sister. And her sister is the illustrator for The Good Lion. And she was the one who challenged Hemingway to write a children's book for her young son, Gerardo. So he wrote the book. So there is a connection between his reasonably well-known adult book, Across the River and Into the Trees, with his his other book called The Good Lion, a book for children. Interestingly enough, it was published first in 1950 in, in an Italian magazine. It went nowhere. And then in 1951... Hemingway's Good Lion was published in Holiday Magazine, of all places, uh, in 1951, as I say. And it wasn't picked up and published as a book, a hardcover book, until 1998, 47 years after its appearance in Holiday Magazine. So both the Holiday Magazine and the Good Lion book are in in my collection, in my exhibition at the Groyer Club. It's funny that he wrote about the eating habits of a lion, which could have been quite gory, right? And (laughs) you think of someone like Roald Dahl, who did death and children so well, it never scares them, and it's always a crucial part of his books. But all of his books are so readable. Yes, they are. Uh, I, I didn't have any of his books at the time. I put this together, so I did not include that. As as I did not include uh, James Bond's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, because uh, I had several years earlier sold my entire collection of James Bond, Ian Fleming's uh, creation, all 13, I'm sorry, 14, I think, uh, of his books. I sold them to a dealer. And the first one being Casino Royale, they were all in marvelous condition. But I didn't have any adult book of Ian Fleming uh, to pair with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, so he being so obvious to include was not included, so there right. you go. Did, did you have a hard time deciding which books, which children's books to, to, to include in the exhibition? Uh, somewhat. Somewhat. I could have included probably a few more, but uh, I did not. But uh, I tried to select uh, either well-known or, or, or popular uh, authors of adult books first and to see then whether they had written a children's book. And surprisingly enough, so many of them did. Um, I, one of the ones I did not include, I probably should have, but it ran out of time, was Lawrence Ferlinghetti's. Uh, he has a book of poems for uh, 
children as well as his regular poems for adults. But that's about it, really. I, uh, I'm happy with the selection. I don't know if I have any others I would have included as much. Um, there are a few. Padraig column as well. But I didn't have the adult books. I have a number of children's books for whom I do not have an adult book even. It's the reverse of my usual collection. Do you think there's many other authors who can do, who can write for both audiences well? Well, interestingly enough, uh, I think Virginia Woolf is one example who wrote a wonderful book called The Widow and the Parrot. It's a children's book, as well as obviously her terrific adult books. And uh, it's a terrific book. Uh, it's a bit of a, a moral involved. And... Uh, I think she probably could have written quite a number of other ones, but uh, uh, had she lived long enough. But this wasn't published until 1988, years after she died. Right. Yeah. I would say out of the modern, really modern authors, Neil Gaiman has the ability, well, he, and has successfully written for children, Coraline, and for adults, if you look at yes. Anansi Boys and American Gods, two very adult books. But... Um, he he can switch genres almost at will, I would say. I would agree with that. I don't have any of his books. Um, I, I really tried to concentrate when I was collecting the modern first adults books uh, on reasonably well-known uh, authors, uh, you know, Margaret Atwood, uh, Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, um, uh, as I say, Graham Greene. I think I have all of Graham Greene's books. Yeah. Interesting anecdote about Graham Greene. Uh, he wrote uh, three or four wonderful children's books, I think. And the first one was The Little Train. And that is not in my collection because I, I did not have the first edition. Uh, in my collection, is in, in the catalog, is The, the Little Horse Bus. Uh, but the first book... A Little Train, he wrote, but it was uh, published uh, anonymously. He did not get credit for it. And there's two uh, 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 theories as to why his name does not appear on his first children's book. One is that he didn't, probably did not want, possibly did not want his uh, reputation as a serious novelist diminished by the fact that he wrote a children's book. Another theory is that because it was illustrated by Dorothy Craigie, who happened to be his lover, uh, he might not have wanted to take attention away from Dorothy Craigie. Right. So, but in the subsequent three books that he wrote, The Little Fire Engine, The Little Steamroller, and The Little Horse Bus, he does get credit as the author, and Dorothy Craigie was also, Craigie was also the illustrator of that book. Right. So, I'm wondering right. if Green even had children. I'm not sure if he did. Uh, I was told he had two children, ah. but he was estranged from them uh, because of his uh, various affairs, maybe just with Dorothy Craigie, I don't know. Right, I think he, he had, had a complex love life. Uh, that's a nice way of putting it, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Involved, let's Involved. say. Involved, it was, oh, it was active. Active, yes, excellent, busy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I thought Chitty Chitty Bang Bang might be in there. Obviously, Ian Fleming is such a huge name in modern firsts. 
yeah. uh, people collect so many of those those James Bond books. But Chitty Chitty and Bang Bang is there and in the middle of his works and is a very entertaining children's book. I, I agree, and uh, I would have had I had, or still had, my 14 James Fl- uh, Bond uh, mystery books, and uh, which, as I say, I sold all to uh, a dealer about five years ago. And uh, so that kind of kept Bond out of the... Uh, uh, kept Ian Fleming out of the collection. Now, do you think that people who are very good at writing children's books should write for adults, so they go the other way around? Do you think we should see more of that? Well, uh, I would think that if they had something to say, uh, uh, that, that, that they def- definitely should be uh, uh, included. But uh, I, I wonder whether they're, you know, they, they have that ability. It's, it's not easy to cross genres in anything. Do you remember when Michael Jordan tried to play baseball? <laughs> yeah. A very good analogy. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I started out in life as a pharmacist, and I was maybe not a very good one, so I went into advertising. I worked for David Ogilvy of Ogilvy & Mather for 30 years. <laughs> Um, so, I, I think you know if, if they have the the instinct, uh, which Hemingway obviously did not, as I kind of illustrated earlier, um, that appreciation for what children uh, like to read, what they understand, uh, whether they're talking directly to them. I think both James Baldwin and Langston Hughes, and you referred to Langston earlier. Uh, really had a good instinct for what children would like to read and, and what they were experiencing in their young lives uh, when when each of them wrote about some of their experiences growing up as African Americans and what you know all the travails that they that they went through uh, you know okay John um, f- uh, finally we asked this to all our guests uh, what book or books are you currently reading well, first of all, let me just say I'm a big fan of ABE books. Uh, Thank you. In, in terms of just getting books that I cannot find elsewhere, and I find the, the, the site very accessible and reasonable. Uh, I'm now reading, halfway through, uh, Zadie Smith's uh, new book called Grand Union. Oh. And I'm reading a book that just came out uh, by Colm McCann called A Paragon and got a rave review on the front page of the New York Times book review a week ago. And it's about two men in uh, Israel and in Palestine, uh, each of whom lost their young, young daughters, 110, 113, uh, to the opposite side in violent confrontations. Uh, Absolutely staggeringly sad. Uh, The 10-year-old girl dies. Uh, of the uh, is, is a Palestinian man, and the 13-year-old daughter dies from the Israeli man. And rather than be angry and violent themselves, that what they each individually decided to see if they, what they could do to work towards peace and understanding of each other's side's point of view. And they have just 
done this now over the past several years, working for peace in, in this Israeli-Palestinian conflict issue. And Colin McCann has written this book called A Paragon about them. And he signed uh, my book, my copy of the book, uh, several nights ago at the 92nd Street Y here in New York City. Wow. And I just digress for a moment. Also, Zadie Smith signed her copy of my book. Lovely. I just digress for a moment about uh, part of my collection of modern verses, getting these books signed. Living in New York, where uh, quite a number of authors come through on their book tours, uh, whether it's at uh, bookstores or book chains, or this 92nd Street Y, which is renowned for hosting famous authors, I get these books signed. And I have probably, as I say, 2,500 3,000 first editions anyway, but about a third of them are now signed by these still living, in most cases, authors, Norman Mailer being an exception. He signed all of my books, but he's not living, and John Updike signed all 44 of my books. But it's wonderful to get <laughs> these books signed, and uh, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, Richard. <laughs> So who else have you met? Well, you name it. I mean, uh, besides uh, Updike and... and uh, can I tell you a story about Norman Mailer? Do you have time for this? Absolutely. Norman Mailer is uh, at a reading out in Queens College here in New York. Uh, not the Queens College in UK, but Queens College out at Long Island. Okay. And he's reading, but it's announced that uh, he's not feeling well that particularly night. He's not going to be signing any books. And I went out there not only to hear him, but also to get my four or five books that I had, first editions, signed by him. But I happened to be, as a pushy New Yorker, uh, in the front row, and I realized that he had to walk off the podium where he had been reading his book. Uh, he had to walk down three steps to get into a private reception area for him. So I angled myself over to the bottom of the three steps that he had to come down. And he kind of hobbled over with his canes and stood at the top of the stairs. And I looked up at him and I said, Mr. Mailer, I'm a big fan of yours. I just have a few books I'd love you to sign if you don't mind. He looked down at me. He didn't say a word. I looked up at him and I didn't know what else to say. He wasn't coming down. I wasn't going up. I looked up at him and I said, and while you're doing that, I'll hold your canes for you. <laughs> <laughs> and he shook his head, and as he might say in New York, he, he probably said to himself, what nerve, what chutzpah this guy has. So he came down to the three steps, handed me his canes, and I handed him the, the books and the pen, and he signed all of the books, and I was very happy. I gave him back his canes, and he went into his private reception, and I went on. I left, so I got all my books signed. So I have a, I, I've written articles about this es, this tendency of mine and, and my various escapades, getting books signed for the the Grolier Gazette has a publication called the uh, the Grolier Club has a uh, publication called the Gazette. And I wrote an article for it called The Autograph Paparazzo uh, about my various exploits about 
getting people to sign books like Kurt Vonnegut and Joan Didion and, wow. as I say, Norman Mailer. Um, I mean, and Margaret Atwood, Anne Enright, Louise Erdrich, uh, uh, Larry McBurtry. Kurt Vonnegut has signed all of his books for me. Wow, that's amazing. When you were, well, when the, you were with uh, Mailer, did you still get the impression that he was a tough guy? Because he always yes. sort of had that yes, attitude. Yes, very much so. Uh, he, he, I mean, tough was kind of putting a, a kind word to it. I, I think he had he had a nasty repu- a reputation for being rather abrupt and nasty, especially with women. But uh, uh, he, you know, he wasn't overly gracious in signing the books. But uh, you know, it was either that or push me out of the way. <laughs> so right. I guess he didn't feel up to that that night. So, which author would you say was the most gracious that you've met and asked them to sign your books? Without a doubt. Well, a tie, but maybe Kurt Vonnegut wins it by a, a, a split vote over John Updike. But Kurt Vonnegut, uh, who did an advertise, or he was part of an advertising campaign that I was involved in uh, at Ogilvy and Mather. And on the day of the photographic shoot, we were to take his picture, and I brought my books along. And he signed all of the books very graciously, talked a lot, chatted a bit, very pleasant. And then we, on Slaughterhouse-Five, I guess his most famous book, not only did he sign the book, Richard, he also dated it, February 14th, 1970. That was the day he signed the book. And for years, uh, it never dawned on me why he chose that particular book to date. And then it occurred to me that was that day was the 25th anniversary of the bombing of Dresden. Which, he, he, which he survived. He, he was a prisoner of war in the sub-sub-basement of this slaughterhouse and 22,000 German civilians were firebombed to death and his job along with other POWs was to come up the following morning and pick up all the charred bodies of these civilians and throw them into trucks to be carted away. It was something that obviously never left him. It affected him deeply, I think. And the fact that it was the absolute 25th anniversary of that event that he signed my book and dated the book. And as I say, it was the only book he dated. It it just... It choked me up even thinking about it yeah, at the time. It, that story is, um, yeah, his, his experiences that he went through, well, I, I can't even imagine what he went through on those days. It's horrible, horrible. Yeah. And Did John Updike, is, uh, in answer to your question too, was a very, very gracious person. Uh, uh, if you have a moment, the story there is simply, uh, he was reading at the New York Public Library many years ago. I was there. My wife, because I had so many Updike books, my wife was good enough to accompany me to the reading. I had about 10 books in my satchel, and she also had, I don't know, five or 10 books in hers. But I was first online, obviously, (laughs) to get the book signed. And at that time, I had him inscribe all of them to John Blaney, best wishes, John Updike, blah, 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 blah. And he did all of them. And I walked away, 
waited for my wife, who was back in line. When she got up to the line, uh, head of the line, she asked him, uh, Mr. Updike, would you uh, please uh, uh, inscribe these to John Blaney? And Updike looked up very surprised and said, John Blaney, he was just here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so he signed all of her books. So I now have, I think, as I said maybe earlier, 44 of John Updike's books, and they're all signed. Wow. (laughs) John, it it must be the most unbelievable collection. It's lovely. I I love it. I don't know how rare it is or how unbelievable it is or how valuable it is, but I love it. uh, I suspect it's very valuable. Um, But anyway, that's, that's not the point. Um, I hope you visit New York City and g- give me a ring sometime and I, come visit. I will. I'll come and see those books. Uh, yeah, I would like to do that. And going back to your original answer, uh, Zadie Smith is an interesting author. So many years ago, I was living in London, and right. I picked up uh, White Teeth, which is really the book that put her on the map. And that book is all about generations of families living in London and particularly North London which is where I was living and I was reading the book on the tube going in and out from North London to Central London then back again at the end of the day and it's a big fat book oh I see and I was actually going through and walking through the suburbs that she was talking about and that's always an interesting experience I've had the same experience also with Nick Hornby living in North London and he's talking about the North London areas and uh it's uh, it's nice when you're actually walking through part of the area where the book, where the narrative is, and I always love doing that. Well, I, I'm a big fan of hers, as, as you say, she's excellent. And uh, what gave me an opportunity, when you mentioned London right now, reminded me of the fact that my wife and I lived in London with our young daughter at the time uh, for six years. Uh, as a result of a, an assignment by Ogilvy and Mather to go work on the Unilever account. And that gave me a wonderful opportunity to frequent uh, English bookstores and haunt them and buy some reasonably good uh, value books, uh, nipping away to Hay on Y, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was great fun. So I, I was able to buy uh, quite a number of good books in, in London at the time. So. All right. Okay. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks for joining us, John. Uh, Richard, it's been my pleasure uh, to talk to you about it, and uh, I look forward to your visit. And uh, I'm off to the New York uh, Armory Book Fair in, in about uh, half an hour. So excellent! You're going to thank see you very it? much for the opportunity <laughs> to talk to you. And your and yeah, you're going to see a lot of modern first editions there. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I, I, I have to look at my checkbook first. To oh see yeah, be careful. <laughs> All right. You All take right. care now. Yeah, and you. That's John Blaney. Uh, you can see John's books at the Grolier Club in New York in an exhibition called "They Also Wrote Children's Books," and it runs until May the second. And I recommend you get down there and have a look. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.